Amen. You have an outline. It's a different outline than I usually put together. Usually I put together extensive outlines. Uh, in this series, I want to, as we're in chapters 6 through 8, I want to be a little more flexible as we go through there. Uh, this is a unit, and uh, as a unit, it'll help us to understand better. And I'll say one more thing. If you want to understand Romans 6 through 8 better, then I would strongly encourage you uh, to be at the 10 o'clock service uh, because that will really help you to understand what these verses are all about uh, without necessarily even using the same words, but the same concepts will be there. So please, 10 o'clock here at Sovereign Grace uh, every Lord's Day. Well, the last time we were in Romans, in November, we looked at verses 1 through 4 as it relates to baptism, as it relates to physical baptism. And then a couple of weeks later, we were able to actually see a baptism where one went down, or two actually, went down into the water to symbolize uh, their death and then came up out of the water to symbolize their resurrection and their new life in Christ. Well, symbolically, that's what verses 1 through 4 are about. But symbolically. Verses 1 through 4, and in fact the entire passage here, is actually about uh, regeneration. It's actually about a spiritual union with Christ. So we'll try to show that as we go through here today and in the weeks to follow. Now let me just read from verse, uh, chapter 6, uh, from 1 to 11, which is far more material than we'll really be able to cover. But let me just read it together so that we get a context. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And right there we found a concept that really is underscored again and again in Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to give an extended illustration of what this means um, as we go through the sermon. I'll ask you to really pick up your ears and perk up to that. And the extended illustration will be used more than once as we deal with these verses. Verse 3. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Baptized into Christ Jesus. We have another place where in Corinthians it talks about the, the children going through the Red Sea were baptized into Moses. The idea is baptized into, of course, Moses, they obviously, figuratively, were baptized into Moses. And uh, baptized into a name is what we're talking about. And baptized into Jesus Christ the Lord. And that's regenerated. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Which is why we should not continue in sin that grace may abound. We're walking in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And there's another important concept, slaves of sin. And Christian friend, that's what you were. That is what you were. 
before Christ redeemed you, before Christ saved you, before the Holy Ghost came and, and dwelt you. You were slaves to sin, and there are many that are still slaves of sin. And uh, you run into them every day, go to the mall, and uh, slaves of sin are walking by you, and walking by you, and walking by you. And our heart goes out to them, but slaves of sin nonetheless. For he who has died has been freed from sin, going back to the idea of being dead and then raised. Now if we believe, now, sorry, um, now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once, or sorry, once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it really was touched on this morning at the 11 o'clock hour. It says, um, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And um, that is often misinterpreted, uh, but uh, it simply means once for all time. He's not going to die again. You know, he died once. It was ordained that he die at a particular time, uh, as Galatians tells us. In the fullness of time he came. In the fullness of time he gave his life. So that's, that's what we mean. That it could be very confusing. He died to sin once for all. Instead of, he died for everybody. That would be an absolute misinterpretation. And really, any studied person that's an Armenian would never go with that interpretation either. Uh, because, uh, but it can look that way on the surface. Okay. Well, we read through the passage. Baptism as we practice it and believe the scriptures teach. Believers' baptism, disciples' baptism is the only way to make sense of the passage uh, as an illustration. But uh, really we need to realize that uh, this is spiritual baptism. And so we're picturing something. We're pi just like the Lord's Supper pictures something. Baptism pictures something. And even our friends who believe in baptizing babies will have to admit that, uh, no, no, this, this is for uh, disciples. This is for those that know the Lord. Because uh, our good Orthodox friends that baptize babies do not believe that they have saved their child by the sprinkling of water on their heads. Okay, they don't believe that. They believe something very different that I won't go into. But they don't believe that their child is now eternally saved because of what they did for the child. Okay. That's not what the good Orthodox believe. But um, we don't believe in infant baptism. And don't believe that that's valid at all. So the force of the passage is spiritual baptism. And uh, there is a, a pastor, and uh, he was a good man, a good expositor. Uh, was not reformed, really, in the sense that, that we are. In fact, he was dispensational, talking about Frank Gabeline. Uh, back in the, about 100 years ago or more, uh, he said this, and I put it on your outline. Our spiritual history began at the cross. We often think our spiritual history began the day that uh, we came to Christ. You know, Our spiritual history began at the cross. We were there in the sense that in God's sight, we were joined to him who actually suffered on it. And then this is really a solid point that he makes here. The time element should not disturb us, because if we sinned in Adam, 
it's equally possible to have died to sin with Christ. Frank, Frank Gabeline has made an excellent point there that I think is very understandable. It's a profound statement though. And the current section we're studying about union with Christ really started in chapter 5. And without reading all of chapter 5, because it's about Adam and his sin, and that all of us were plunged into sin, union with Christ is in there too. So let me just pick a few verses as we work our way through. Uh, verse 12 of chapter 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sinned, verse 15, but the free gift who was to come, or sorry, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Verse 17, for if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And then verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And you can see how this can be confusing to people. As sometimes it says all, and we have a tendency to think all means all, all of the time. And it simply doesn't. It simply can't. In fact, it hardly ever does. It's the truth of the matter. All kinds is usually a better way to look at it. All within a certain group. All within a certain uh, amount of, of people, for instance. So it's a powerful argument regarding election to see that we were doomed in Adam actually before the foundation of the world and uh, that we're united to Christ by the death and resurrection of Christ. So for the lost, uh, there's damnation, but as Christians, there's being united to Christ. All in Adam die. All in Christ have eternal life. And it says in verse 6-4, when he died and rose again, he did that for us, you know. And that's the key, is the death and resurrection. Now, once we deal with the death and resurrection, re regeneration, we start to talk about sanctification. Sanctification, the beginning of the sanctification process is regeneration. But sanctification can be understood in two ways. One is a present reality that we have been sanctified, okay? As if we we're already perfect. But progressive sanctification being made more and more and more into the image of Christ. So we have to think of two ways as we deal with sanctification. In fact, this is what our catechism says. I'll just read you the catechism question. I think it's on your outline. It is. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. And if it stopped there, that would, be, that would be it, right? But no, then we go on, and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. We're renewed in the whole man. We're not the same person. We're a new creation. 
We're on the path to heaven, and although it may not seem like it, in God's plan, it's like we're already there. You say, well, how can you, how can you say that? You know? Say that because that's what the Bible says. The Bible talks about sanctification both ways. We're enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And this is what we are experiencing right now in our present day, in our present life. Uh, and read Pilgrim's Progress. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about uh, regeneration and then sanctification. And most of the book is about sanctification. There's still a battle. We have to strive against sin. There is still a striving to live a life of holiness and obedience to God. And this makes sanctification a difficult subject in, in so many ways. And a subject we're going to be studying from now on through verse, chapter 6, 7, and 8. It's a difficult subject. A.W. Pink is one of the foremost theologians of the past century. You know, almost everything you read from A.W. Pink, in my opinion, is, is very, very good, very, very edifying, very, very even balanced. I know he gets called a hyper-Calvinist. I don't believe that's a fair statement at all. I could take you to many passages where uh, you could see A.W. Pink is not a hyper-Calvinist. But he tells us that he spent 20 years before he wrote a book on sanctification because he felt like he just didn't get it good enough to write a book. Finally, after 20 years of Bible study and ministry, he wrote a book on sanctification. And not to disparage his book or disparage A.W. Pink, it's one of his lesser known works. Okay, so take that for what it is. You know, the passage Romans 6, 1 through 4 is all about spiritual baptism into Christ and it uses physical baptism as the illustration of this great truth. That just sums up what we said. When Christ died, I died. When Christ was buried, I was buried. When Christ rose, I rose. Christian friend, you can apply that I to you, okay? For it's true for you. We'll have practical implications for how we now live as Christians. So the last time we looked at the verses of baptism, now we're going to look at them as identification with Christ, union with Christ. So verse 1, look there again. What shall we say then that we shall continue in sin, that grace may abound? This bounces off of chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover the law entered, that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So the idea that uh, was being said, Paul are you saying that the more you sin, the more grace you receive? Well, there's a sense that that's true. There's a sense that that's true. God meets it at a point of need. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Our brother Christian brought this up about um, some differences in the Gospels here. But I'm going to use this as an illustration. It's a, real, it's a real happening. This actually did happen. And it gave Christ a teaching opportunity. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Okay. And, and this is after Jesus had done a, a lot of teaching. He was invited into the house of a Pharisee. Okay. Verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. 
and he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. Jesus was very kind. He ate with sinners, and he even ate with sinning Pharisees. Oh, there you go. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, and stood at his feet behind him weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the fragrant oil. So you get the picture, right? Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw that he said this, he spoke to himself. In other words, he didn't verbalize it, but this is what he's thinking. This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. Well, there was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, you have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins which are many. Did you get that? Wasn't that she wasn't a sinner? Her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is given, to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. It brings tears to my eyes to think about that. What an amazing, amazing, true story and illustration of God's grace, you know. And this Pharisee, we have no idea, this Pharisee named Simon, have no idea if he was a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it doesn't look good. If this man were a prophet, he would know what this woman is like. And the accusation that Christ brings against him basically is, uh, you didn't even honor me when I came into your home. It was like you either thought you were equal to me or lesser than me. And I extend this invitation to you. And I should be honoring you when I'm the one that must be honored. And this woman has done exactly that. She's honored me. She has humbled herself down into the dust. A woman's hair is her glory. The Bible tells us that. And we know that's true. She washes his dirty feet, and they were dirty. One of the things you would do to a guest 
is you would wash their feet. They were in sandals. They were walking in dirt roads. They didn't have nice paved roads or even bad paved roads like we have with potholes all over them. They had dirt roads and their feet would be filthy. So you would usually have your servant, if you were wealthy, wash the feet of the guests or maybe wash them yourself. That's what you would do to show honor and to show respect and just for cleanliness sake, if nothing else. This woman used her glory, which is her hair, to dry the feet of Jesus that she had wet with her tears. And that's an amazing thing. Was she a sinner? Absolutely. She was a notorious sinner. People knew that she was a sinner. She was probably pretty much an outcast from society. But she came to Christ, and Christ received her. Why? Because Christ receives sinners. That's why. That's what he does. You know, and, um, you know, it's a sense that we can say the more wicked we are, the more grace is given to cover our sins. But we know, number one, don't sin more to get more grace. No, that uh, God doesn't work that way because our hearts have been changed. But the reality is, and this is something Simon needed to learn. You can turn back to Romans 6. Simon needed to learn this, and so do we. That we're all sinful to the max. Simon obviously thought he was better than this woman. We're all sinful to the max. We're totally depraved. That doesn't mean we've committed all the sins that we possibly could sin. No. But we're totally depraved. We have no righteousness of our own. Outside of Christ, we could not be any more lost than we already are. It's impossible to be more lost. You're either lost or you're not. Okay. So, you know, outside of Christ, we couldn't be any more lost than we already are. There's, there's no purgatory that puts us halfway in between. You know, it just doesn't exist. So Paul is not saying sin all you want so you can get more grace. Paul was accused of that and accused falsely by his enemies because he preached a gospel of free grace. We do not believe, Paul did not believe in works righteousness. We do not believe, Paul did not believe in helping God save me by my works. We do not believe, Paul did not believe, our right standing with God is based on anything that we do Our right standing with God is based on what Jesus Christ has done for us. There's attacks that come against that doctrine. Free grace, God saving us. There's attacks that come. They come from two sources. One, we could call the antinomians, those that are against the law. Those who believe the law of God has been done away with those that are in Christ. They're true libertines who believe that it makes no difference what you do or how you live if you are a Christian. And this is based on uh, many faulty understandings, um, but one is found in decisionism. The idea of decisionism, that once you make your decision, so to speak, for Christ, once you pray the sinner's prayer, you're bound for heaven, and some have even 
dare to say, once you've prayed the sinner's prayer, you're bound for heaven, even if you never have another thought of God again. Even if you never have a thought of Jesus Christ again. Because you did for a split instance believe. You're eternally saved. Well, I see your head shaking. <laughs> and you're right to shake your head. That is, that's atrocious. You know, most antinomians don't go that far, but some have. And they put it in writing so that you know they've gone that far. Uh, Charles Ryrie is one that's done that. Put it in writing. So his words speak, and I've never seen where he's recanted them. And then some others have done the same. Then there's the other side, who say, well, you Baptists, who do you think you are? You believe in once saved, always saved? Well, in a way we do, but not in the way that we're being accused. We believe when God regenerates a heart, he changes a person. And we don't believe that God ever undoes the work that he does. You know, when he's adopted us as sons, he doesn't watch us and say, that guy's really out of hand. Guy's doing bad. What am I going to do? At what point am I going to disinherit him? So he is not my son anymore. And he goes back to his lost condition. I would argue that if that were true, one sin would be enough. One sin would be enough. Because what does every sin deserve? It deserves the wrath of God and eternal judgment. Every sin deserves that. Every single sin. But we've been forgiven. We're sinners that have been forgiven. And yes, we still sin. Obviously, we do. We'll be getting to that. So, there are opponents on both sides, you know. And, and I think the second side here has some commendation to it, even though it's very, very wrong. There's a motivation that if you tell people they're free and that all of their sins are forgiven eternally, then people will just be wicked. They'll be vile. There's no re we, we need to, to pound them so that they'll understand uh, that uh, you, know, you can't live a wicked life. And I'm telling you that we need to preach the gospel to Christians and we need to preach it to the lost. Okay? We need to see ourselves in Christ, believing in him. And we hate the very sin that we do, but sin is what we still do. And we'll be talking about that as we go. Do we really think we can keep people from sinning by lying to them? Do we really think that's going to work? You know, Obviously not. How much better to preach the gospel? How much better to have men and women trusting God and looking to Him? You know, How much better to understand the eschatological truth, the last thing's truth. How much better to understand the already and the not yet? Not yet perfect, but in some aspects, that's where I'm, in all aspects, that's where I'm going to be, but in some aspects, I can be talked about before the throne of God that way today. It's amazing, the already and the not yet. 
I'm already in the eternal state as it relates to God. I'm currently on the pathway to heaven as it relates to the year 2024. Now, dead to sin. Dead to, we're going to go as far as we can here. I'm not going to, to belabor things because I think we're going to be able to deal with this 6 through 8, chapter 6 through 7 especially, and chapter 8 uh, and in, um, in segments. Okay. If you, we already read verses 2 through 8, so I won't read them again. You can look at them as I speak. But the whole reason that this is true, walking in newness of life and, and seeing ourselves being in Christ, is because we're no longer slaves of sin, we've become slaves of Christ. And here's where the extended illustration comes in. I want you to really listen to this. I want you to really think about it. Uh, pick it apart if you wish in your own mind, and I'd be glad to talk to anybody about it, and uh, I believe our pastors would too. An extended illustration is here. Now remember, every illustration can break down. Okay, so no human illustration is perfect. And I use the woman her, with the tears and hair as an illustration. Okay, well here's another illustration. Okay. Even though that assertion was true, that actually happened. Okay. This is Paul's, I believe, extended illustration that is going throughout this entire passage. Let me just read verses 6 and 7 again to help you with this. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Okay. Now, this idea is actually throughout the passage, but there it was in pretty stark terms. And uh, it'll, we'll visit this again as we head to chapter 9. But one time, I had a master, and that master was sin. We were slaves for sin. We were slaves to sin. Now, I'm going to change the tone of that, not just talk about myself, but let's take this hypothetical fellow. This hypothetical fellow, and you can put yourself in the place better than if I say I, 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 I think, okay? This slave was kept in a prison by a tyrannical master. Actually, the slave didn't even realize he was in prison. He didn't even realize he was a slave. In fact, he would sometimes proudly boast that he was the master of his own fate and his destiny was up to him. The slave was promised happiness by this master. Promised that if you do what you want to do, you will find joy, you will find happiness, you will be free. But as he lived his life that way, he was continually disappointed. And sometimes his conscience would even tell him that he's living a lie. The slave didn't know any other way to live, though, so he continued living that way. He didn't even know what he was living for, really. And so there were many attempts to, to do things differently, you know. But in the end, no matter what he did, he would always find himself worse off than he was before. And so distractions became his way of life. Not thinking about these things became his way of life. And he did find that his master would give him temporary pleasures and allow him to live in pleasure at times, but the pleasures were short. They never lasted. 
and they always seem to put him in worse state afterwards. In the pursuit of pleasure, happiness, even peace, before the slave ever knew it, he would go right back to that state of being a slave to sin. The master, well, he made this slave's life unbearable. Always demanding more. The master sometimes would, would um, just come and beat the slave. Beat him without mercy. Beat him just uh, almost to death. Sometimes the slave would realize the prison he's in and he had desired to escape out of it. But really there was no way for this slave to escape. Sin, his master, was too strong. He tried to escape by morality. Tried to even escape by religion. You know, he did find in his dungeon there was a ladder that reached to the top. It was the, a ladder with ten rungs, the ten commandments. And so he said, that's how I'll get out of here, by obeying the ten commandments. So he began to climb that ten-runged ladder, only to have the slave master come and take some of those rungs and beat him back down to the ground with them, where he would lay bruised and broken once again. Bunyan talked about it in a different way. He talked about the hill of morality that Christian tried to, not Christian, but pilgrim at that time, tried to find peace with. The hill of morality, a very high hill. He got underneath it and realized that hill was going to fall on his head. You know, that was not the way to God. Okay. So hopeless, there seemed to be no way of escape from his bondage and suffering. There was no way he could escape and save himself. And worst of all, worst of all, when it was all said and done, if he read the scriptures to find out what was going to happen to him as he served this master, 623 would tell him, Romans 623, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. That's what he had to look forward to. Hopeless and helpless. But, there's always a but, right? Thank the Lord for the but. You know, that changes everything. There was a great king who, out of love for the prisoner, devised a way to release him from this prison. The great king actually called and arranged for the slave to be crucified. Crucified. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. The great king called for and made it such that um, the slave was crucified. The slave master came and to his dismay found that his slave was dead. Now he couldn't beat him. Now he couldn't mock him. Now he couldn't terrorize him. He no longer had any rights over the slave. His slave was dead. And the master-slave relationship had been broken forever. It was gone. 
No longer was he a slave to sin. But when the slave's body was buried, the great king came and raised him from the dead. A resurrection, verse 8. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. The king didn't just raise him from the dead. The king took him into his own home, formed a new relationship. He became a new master, but even though he was his master, he said, I've called you friends. And then he even said, you're joint heirs with me. Joint heirs. A son or a daughter of God. The slave was overjoyed at this new relationship. He was in awe of this kind, gentle, wise, all-powerful king. A king that could actually raise him from the dead. He desired with all of his heart to serve this new master. Not out of slavish fear, but out of love. Out of gratitude. The old relationship had ended with death. Yet he was still alive. He had died to sin was alive to God. And my friend, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are that slave who's been rescued. Sin helped you captive, promising by its lies and promising good and great things even though you were in bondage. And you were condemned by the law. And maybe you tried to be good. Maybe you tried to obey. It was never good enough. You always failed. It's only being found in Christ that we can have new life. Look at verse 3 of chapter 6. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Which brings us to union in Christ. Those verses actually are about union with Christ. And in verse 5 we have a, an interesting term, a botanical term there, uh, that talks about being united, you know. And um, really, being united, for we've been united together. And the reason I say it's a botanical term, it's the term that in the Greek would have been used to actually talk about grafting uh, a branch into another branch and making it one. Okay. And, you know, that, that's the idea here. And it's the same idea Christ talked about, I am the vine and, and you are the branches. And it's the same idea that we're going to find again in Romans chapter 11 about engrafting. We were in Christ when he died. This is by the eternal degree of election, the eternal decree of election, and he came to save his people from their sins. And Galatians 2, you don't need to turn there. I'll just quote it, Galatians 2, 20 through 21. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the Christian experience. That's the blessings that we have in Christ. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. That's verse 21 of that same chapter. 
Being a Christian is a new way of thinking. It's a new way of living. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And you might be thinking, but I still sin. Yeah, you do. I do too. I wish I didn't. I'll join you with that. Me too. I hate sin. But I find myself in it sometimes anyway. Well, I think we need to wrap it up here because there's more to say, a lot more to say, and the time is not going to allow us and our minds and our bodies can only take so much. Wouldn't it be great to be in heaven when that won't be true? We don't worry about time ever. Our bodies will never betray us. We'll always be able to, to be glorying God and praising God and worshiping God and all of that. But Verse 7 and 8 are worth reading one more time. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we also shall live with him. Live with him now, live with him eternally. We sinned in Adam and died in him. Some, some of you are school teachers, a few of you are school teachers here. Wouldn't it be great if we went back to something like this? Teaching kids to read with the old McGuffey readers. The old McGuffey readers had a lot of great things in them, a lot of good moral issues that you would not be allowed to teach in a secular classroom anymore. You wouldn't be allowed to do it. But the old McGuffey reader that would taught children to read and taught the alphabet said, one of the things it says, in Adam's fall we sinned all. Can you imagine? <laughs> you know, uh, I think the teachers' union would uh, make sure that they didn't protect you <laughs> for saying that. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. We did. We died in Adam. And when Adam died, we died. But then, all that are in Christ died when he died. Those that are not in Christ die in Adam. Those that have the Lord Jesus Christ, well, when he died, he rose, and so do we. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we know without Christ, there is no hope, because they have a master. It's sin, it's lust, it's do your own pleasure, when you fulfill your lusts, though, you condemn yourself. When you try to reform, you condemn yourself because you can't do it. The law is against you. God himself is against you. The wrath of God hangs over you. But we thank you that there is the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that by looking to him in faith, because of the work that he has done, because of what he has, not what we have done, not what my hands have done, but because of what he has done, this great king has made Christians alive by killing their sin and being found in him, in his righteousness, which is the only righteousness that actually exists. We thank you for this gospel truth. We thank you, Father, that we believe. You have made us believers and we believe. We thank you for that. 
How do we know a Christian? A Christian is one that believes and trusts. We thank you, Father, for the great mercy with which you've saved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.